0: The term Captology is derived from an acronym for the phrase Computers as Persuasive Technologies, and this acronym And the phrase and resultant new word were coined by the behavioral scientist Dr. B.J. Fogg, with two Gs. A man who, among other things, is credited with having identified, outlined, and weaponized the modern consumer technology industry's ability to persuade and even manipulate the users of those technologies. Dr. Fogg founded the Persuasive Technology Lab at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California in 1998, and that lab really hit its stride leading up to 2007, when he taught a class on the subject of building persuasion into one's software, and encouraged all of his 75 students that year to produce apps for Facebook's relatively new platform, which allowed outside programmers to create add-ons for their social network. Many of those students made gobs of money before the class had even finished, and that success led to a boom in the popularity of the class, and for fog, and for the concept of building these sorts of subtle manipulating factors into one's work. Perhaps the most famous of Dr. Fogg's successes today, one that he still touts in interviews that he does, and on his website as well, is that of Instagram, which was founded by a student of his. And the success of this network would seem to be at least in part attributable to what this student and founder learned from Fogg. From a piece published on Fogg's website, quote, Instagram has influenced the behavior of over 800 million people. The co founder was a student of mine. End quote. Fogg's public work on this subject spans about two decades, so he's one of the better known names in the world of persuasive technology, but he's nowhere near the only person doing research and applying constantly evolving techniques in this space. At the same time, I find Fogg and his work particularly fascinating because of the seeming dichotomy in how he promotes both the work and the consequences of that work. Much of the language he uses to describe what is possible using these techniques, this understanding, is steeped in positivity and progress of humanism and virtue. But you can find other pieces that he has written over the years and interviews that he's done, even recently, where he takes a distinctly different stance, focusing instead on the nudge-nudge-wink-wink economic capabilities that app developers are seeking when they are sorting out the details of how to make millions and maybe billions of dollars from their new game or social network or whatever. He positions his work as a way to get people to click on ads, to check the app a million times a day, to do whatever the app developer wants them to do. His ideas about world peace, and he has described his work in those terms before as a way of achieving world peace within about 30 years, if you can believe it, those high ideals are shifted to the back burner at times to make room for further explanation as to how his research can help programmers manipulate users into behaving in ways that are negative and unhealthy for them, but monetarily beneficial for the app developer. What I want to talk about today is this type of manipulation, how this flavor of persuasion works, and how it is applied in other fields beyond the world of consumer technology you're listening to let's know things i'm colin wright the article i want to start with today was published on Medium by an adolescent psychologist, that is, a psychologist who focuses on adolescence, not a psychologist who is an adolescent, named Richard Freed. And to give a quick bit of context as to both his bias and his credibility in this space, he is the author of a book called Wired Child, Reclaiming Childhood in a Digital Age. So he knows a fair bit about this topic, but he also has an opinion that he has formalized in book form about it. And the article that he published on Medium is closely related to the topic of the book, and it is entitled The Tech Industry's War on Kids. Now, there's one more caveat I want to mention alongside the one that I just noted about the bias in this article, but this one is about the author's specialty, psychology. Psychology is a totally legit field of inquiry, and it's one that has helped shine a light on human behavior from an angle that would be difficult to observe and document in any other way. At the same time, however, it's a different sort of science than, for instance, physics or biology. And that's because with physics or biology, it is far simpler to be proven right or wrong, to be able to say, if I do this, this will happen, and then to be able to show conclusively that it is so or not so. Psychology allows for the creation of hypotheses, of experiments, and of relatively strict constraints on variables and things like that, but there is also a lot more room for interpretation. Not through any fault of the experimenters, but because much of what they are measuring must be interpreted to be documented. Because they are either watching people and gauging reactions, or they are asking questions of people. And in both cases, that means filtering a possible fact or bit of data through the biased lens of the test subject and of the researcher who is documenting the test subject's responses. Historically, it has been shown that the discoveries made during psychological studies support the hypothesis of the researcher who is conducting those studies somewhere between 91.5 and 97% of the time, which is extraordinary. That's about five times higher than in other scientific fields. Meaning, the researcher will say, you know what, I think if I do this, then this will happen. And then when the experiment to test that theory is done, it's incredibly likely that the results will support the psychologists in their assumptions. While in other scientific fields, it's far more unlikely that the outcome will prove their initial suppositions correct, meaning, perhaps, that the interpretive wiggle room available with psychological research is allowing those doing the measuring to measure the things that support their assertions, either consciously or unconsciously, or to bend the responses or warp their perception of them in such a way that it seems to do so. On top of that, in 2010, researchers demonstrated a systemic bias that's prevalent in the world of psychology, in part because of who does this research and in part because of the structural limitations of the field. Which means, in this case, that psychological studies tend to favor so-called weird subjects. Weird being an acronym for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic subjects. This is because a large number of test subjects for psychology experiments come from Western universities, because professors can require that their students participate in a certain number of these studies if they want to pass their courses, and they can more easily get non-psychology students to participate by offering small bonuses and payments, since those students will already be on campus, probably within walking distance of where the research will be conducted. Beyond the university gap, a great deal of research in this space uses countries like the United States and Canada and the UK and European nations as the default, as the vanilla flavor in their studies. The overall demographics of research subjects, then, leans heavily in favor of folks who are from westernized cultures, who are formally educated, who are from industrialized economies, who are relatively wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world, and who are democratic leaning in the sense that they come from democracies. That tends to frame standards and norms from these countries as normal. It makes them the default, and any standards or norms that differ from those are thereby positioned as abnormal, and perhaps at times even deviant. So while we have learned a lot from the world of psychology, and while it is still considered to be very legitimate and very helpful overall as a field of inquiry, it's helpful to remember that there are potential biases at work here. And that's particularly true when it comes to broad statements about how and why humans interact with technology as these types of interactions can vary greatly in numerous ways from culture to culture, from economic group to economic group, and from person to person. Okay, so healthy doubt firmly in place, the issues brought up in this piece, and the specific examples used as supporting evidence by the author are fairly compelling. And part of why they are so compelling is I think, is that most of them seemed familiar to me almost immediately, in some cases because they represented a more extreme version of things that I've felt or experienced myself, and in some cases because they seemed to explain, or at least address, habits and behaviors that I have noticed in other people around me, both strangers and friends. The piece starts out with a somewhat distressing account of smartphone addiction, in which a 15-year-old becomes violent and suicidal when her parents threaten to take away her phone after her grades and social life and health begin to suffer as a result of her habits related to the device. Basically, she was spending every waking moment on it, in addition to late night and early morning moments during which she should have been sleeping. The author uses this and other anecdotes as a framework for a case against the forces that be in the tech field, many of whom seem to be gleefully abusing their power over their users in order to rake in millions or billions of dollars for themselves and for their shareholders without considering the negative consequences of their actions. And he ties this mentality in with the Silicon Valley pseudo-libertarian view of personal responsibility positing that a common belief in the tech business world is that personal responsibility and individuality, not social responsibility, are kind of the name of the game. And if you are manipulated by your phone or anything else, well, that's kind of your own fault. You should have educated yourself more effectively. You should have taken better care when developing your habits. Just quit using the phone so much if you are worried that you are using the phone too much. At the same time, though, these same people who have those sorts of beliefs will brag to audiences of developers and advertisers and investors about their ability to make the masses dance to their tune, telling them that they can make the world's phone-using population do pretty much whatever they like for the right price. In other words, they are saying it is the fault of the addict to one audience, but that they can make anyone addicted to anything and keep them addicted to another. The contrast between those two positions is pretty stark, and there doesn't seem to be much dissonance on the part of those making these dichotomous claims, at least publicly. As I mentioned in the intro, people like Dr. Fogg, who developed a lot of the frameworks and understanding that are used in this space, tend to position themselves as the creators of tools that can help people eat better, work out more, and be more socially responsible while simultaneously promoting themselves as puppet masters whose work, addicting people to products and services, speaks for itself. I think it's possible that both things are true, both in their minds, the minds of the people doing this work, And in fact, I think it's possible that as for most things, this is not a black and white issue and that the justification here for the folks building these tools, developing these addictive user interfaces and platforms and services, and for those who flog the concept as being pro-social but also pro-business, that the justification they settle on is that it's all about how you choose to use it. This tool, like any other tool, can be harmful or helpful in the right hands. Consider that from the perspective of an everyday user, from the perspective of that 15-year-old girl who became so hooked on her phone that her life pretty much fell apart, the addictive potential of services like Instagram are not terribly beneficial. That app, and others like it, are designed to train users to press buttons to get dopamine surges, which makes us feel momentarily pretty good. See the right little bubble showing up with a number of likes inside of it, and you get a chemical reward in your brain. Fail to get that bubble, and you get no such reward. The addictiveness comes into play when we begin to rely on these apps, these platforms, for those mental feel-good chemicals. They begin, in time, to replace our other sources of these types of feelings, and as a result, we compulsively pull out our phones any chance we get, hoping for a quick fix. We then post-facto subconsciously justify this reflex in other ways, of course. We tell ourselves that we are checking the app just one more time, in case some important message came in, since we last checked a few minutes ago. But generally, justification is all that is. Our brain is hoping for another bump, another injection of the good stuff, and these apps have trained us to see them as the simplest at-hand source of that particular drug. For that girl and the example then, and for the rest of us who slowly but surely become dependent on these sorts of chemical relationships, the psychological understanding and the weaponizing of this knowledge and the application of that knowledge to create habits can be incredibly harmful. A quote from that article, which actually quotes another article, puts this into better context than I can, I think. Quote, Ramsey Brown, the founder of Dopamine Labs, says in a KQED science article, quote, We have now developed a rigorous technology of the human mind, and that is both exciting and terrifying. We have the ability to twiddle some knobs in a machine learning dashboard we build. And around the world, hundreds of thousands of people are going to quietly change their behavior in ways that, unbeknownst to them, feel second nature, but are really by design. End quote. Programmers call this brain hacking, as it compels users to spend more time on sites, even though they mistakenly believe it is strictly due to their own conscious choices. End quote. Now, the flip side of that is that these sorts of addictions, these sorts of reflexes can be good for pulling people into valuable, healthy, shared social spaces. Sure, Instagram makes a killing from ad sales, which monetizes our attention. So getting us to spend more time on the app, more time staring at our screens makes them more money. But first, that is not an inherently negative thing. These networks can help us build relationships, can expose us to new ideas and people from around the world. They can help us stay informed and inspired and connected. And second, if we didn't have an ad-based revenue model of this kind, which turns attention into dollars, these companies would need to charge for their services. And that would turn these networks into a sort of caste system where only those who can afford to pay can participate. And that would stratify participation, ensuring those from wealthier demographics are only exposed to other people like them, reducing the inherent value of being part of such a network, and it would reduce the number of resources and opportunities available to folks from poorer areas or less privileged backgrounds. The popularity of these networks is boosted by their chemical addictiveness, sure, but these platforms are also addictive because of what they offer. They are often way more fascinating, in some ways at least, than what is going on around us at any given moment. There's a common refrain heard in rants against contemporary technology that these technologies pull us away from more legitimate, honest, real-life engagement, And there's no doubt some truth to that, but I would argue that this is not always the case. In a lot of situations, and for a lot of people, what is happening around them, in real life, in person, is not that informative or valuable. The people they could be talking to in real life might be more of the same, familiar folks with familiar ideas. While the people they can engage with online, even if just superficially, might expose them to new ideas, groundbreaking insights, things they would never encounter in their small town, in their homogenous community, in their suffocating family, or their reclusive suburban neighborhood, real life is not inherently better for all things all the time. There are pros and cons to real-world interactions, just as there are pros and cons to digital interactions. Pretending that one is inherently superior because it's traditional, because it's old, because it was the only way to do things for most of human history, does not make it so. There are still many situations in which we would probably benefit more from being present in person, non-digitally, more of the time, so that we could both learn from our surroundings and have healthier engagement with those around us and with our own bodies and thoughts by disconnecting and just existing as atoms for a while rather than as pixels. But there are absolutely times where the opposite is true as well. And reaching out as an entity made of ones and zeros can liberate us, can expand our minds, can change our lives, increase our capabilities and capacity to learn and create and grow. Part of the discussion here, and it's a discussion that entered the mainstream in large part because of the behemoth Facebook has become, and Facebook owns Instagram by the way, along with several other massive and popular networks and services, they have become huge and their seeming abuses and oversights have entered the world of politics and international relations, and as a consequence we are taking a closer, perhaps too long delayed look At this whole field of study, this whole concept of user manipulation, and how making an app appealing, making folks want to play that game a lot, making us want to use and interact with Instagram and similar platforms constantly, how that impacts us beyond the obvious, beyond it just soaking up our time and attention. What is all of this doing to us, both negative and positive? What might the long term consequences be? Is there anything? that we could be doing better to try to alleviate the worst outcomes? And is there anything we could be doing to increase the generally positive ones? And importantly, how can we distinguish one from the other? How can we differentiate healthy engagement with people from elsewhere and with media like art and film and writing that we find online from addiction to one's phone and the apps that it contains? Where do we draw the line? How can we figure out when the outrage and pushback against these technologies are legitimate and when they are just the concerned noises of Luddites and old people who are afraid of anything that they don't understand? Let's take another look at the broader concept here by stepping away from this industry-specific example and addressing a few other largely unconnected industries, which nonetheless overlap with this issue in some interesting ways. The tobacco industry gives us a relatively clear parallel here, I think. Like with tech addiction, addiction to cigarettes and chew and things like vape pens, they're often blamed on the individual. Just don't use it if you don't like it. At the same time, though, the companies that produce these products, which have been repeatedly and clearly shown to be physically harmful to users and addictive on multiple levels, including very serious chemical ones, These companies fund lobbying interests to ensure that these substances stay legal, and their media arms ensure that they stay popular by presenting the conflict over potential increased regulation as a sort of freedom of speech issue, the freedom to behave how you want to behave, and the no-fun government trying to keep us from doing what we want, rather than as a pure and simple money grab at the expense of folks who get addicted to these harmful products. Now, I'm not going to get into the immense depth of data that we have that tobacco products are harmful, chances are, even if you are super pro tobacco and hardcore addicted to cigarettes, you are using these products with your eyes wide open, you know that it is not good for you. There has been a recent and interesting twist in this industry, though, as vaporizers, which basically deliver intense amounts of nicotine using a salt form of the substance, which makes the product feel different from cigarettes in some superficial ways, but which also allows tobacco companies to sell a different seeming, hipper-feeling product to young people. Those have become popular, and this seems to be resulting in a lot of kids getting stuck on nicotine while they are young and far more impressionable. And that's not a dig at young people. There is a lot of research that shows that our brains are far more malleable, for better and for worse, and that makes us more manipulatable when we are younger, until we're about 25 years old, on average. So at the moment... There's this new product on the block that is pretty much begging for young people's attention, and the companies behind this product are going through the typical legal song and dance, telling regulators that, hey, it says right there on the box that this is not for kids, it's not our fault, that these ads that we're placing on Instagram and on billboards near high schools are appealing to that younger demographic, we can't figure out what's happening. No way we can control that. But the burgeoning, vaporized nicotine industry aside, the tobacco industry has been a fantastic case study in how to sell the public on something that is obviously, demonstrably horrible for them, and to convince that same group of people, those that they are killing, to defend that product tooth and claw against anyone who might come and try to take it from them. Now, there has been a similar, slower-moving tumult with various members of what we might loosely call the sugar lobby of late. Lawmakers in various places around the world, with varying levels of success, have tried to instigate soft drink bans, which are an example of what's called a Pigovian tax, which is a tax meant to create negative externalities for particular activities, in this case, buying unhealthy things. So they implement a tax on something that they want people to do less in the hope that that will slowly but surely dissuade people from doing it, and thereby reduce the problem without them having to implement a hardcore law against that thing instead. Such a tax has seemingly worked well, or at the very least been part of the solution, when it comes to bringing cigarette smoking rates down in the United States. In the last few decades in particular, smoking levels have plummeted throughout the country, with only about 14% of American adults having smoked at some point in 2017, which is down from about 40% 50 years ago. So that is a pretty monumental shift. And even that number is somewhat different deceptively high, at least for most groups, as the number of middle-class and wealthier people who smoke in the United States is substantially lower, with the majority of tobacco products being consumed by a relatively small demographic of people within lower economic classes. Meaning, in the United States, consuming tobacco products has shifted from being a cool, rebellious thing to being a thing that poor people do. And that perception has almost certainly contributed to that overall decline in usage. And it's quite possibly part of why the industry, the tobacco industry, is so keen to get their claws into young people while they can, lest their industry disappear entirely in another generation or two within the United States. But these more recent sugar-related Pigovian tax efforts have faced a difficult battle against many food and beverage interests. And it's been interesting to watch entities like Coca-Cola and their lobbyists roll out many of the exact same tactics used by the tobacco industry, including convincing their customers to fight on their behalf by framing the battle as not people against businesses that don't care if their customers die, but as an overbearing government against the people who want to make their own decisions and who want to be able to consume two big gulps of Mountain Dew each day if they damn well please. And honestly... Even though that framing of this conflict is disingenuous, there are elements of the actual legitimate argument that I agree with. I personally think that folks should be able to do whatever they please to their own bodies, and though I do think it's probably prudent to have restricted access to certain chemical substances in certain situations, and that it's probably a good idea to continue enforcing drunk driving laws and things like that, why shouldn't you be able to poison yourself however you want? It's your body. In most cases, though, the lawsuits brought against these companies and the taxes meant to limit their growth are aimed at their youth-facing efforts, not their adult-facing efforts. Meaning, rather than trying to convince your Uncle Bob that he can't have his daily double big gulp, these regulations are meant to keep kids from getting addicted to sugary drinks when they are young, leading to a lifestyle of processed sugar addiction. And though that may mean removing soda vending machines from schools and not allowing Coca Cola to sponsor high school sports stadiums so they can slather their logo all over the place, it is difficult to know how else to keep such addictive seeds from being planted early on, becoming so entrenched that they're incredibly difficult to dig out later in life, even if your health and maybe your life depends on it. But that in mind, consider this why should we tax or ban? Soft drinks as a deterrent, in certain circumstances at least, to try to modify behavior, to try to protect the youth from these types of addictions, and not do the same to Instagram. Why should we demonize tobacco and not coffee? Why not attempt to adjust through punishment our video game habits and our tendency to sit for long periods of time each day as well? Why, in other words, are we punishing some forms of negative, unhealthy behavior and not others. There was a piece in The Atlantic back in 2012, entitled Exploiting the Neuroscience of Internet Addiction, which said, quote, The leaders of internet companies face an interesting, if also morally questionable, imperative. Either they hijack neuroscience to gain market share and make large profits, or they let competitors do that and run away with the market. End quote. Under the auspices of modern, let's call it Western style capitalism. Isn't that kind of true? Isn't that kind of a legitimate concern? Doesn't it seem to be the case that even if we manage to keep Coca-Cola from filling our schools with sugary drinks and Philip Morris from getting everyone hooked on nicotine and Instagram from keeping us glued to our phones at all hours of the day, that someone else will come along and do it instead? Doesn't it seem that we have evolved our economic structure in such a way to encourage exactly this sort of behavior? The pursuit of economic success, of market share and mind share, at any cost, even human cost? Isn't that what we implicitly and explicitly tell ourselves through our cultural pursuits? That our means to an end is also kind of an end unto itself, at least if you want to be competitive? I think it's possible to understand the logic of this manipulative behavior, to get it in the sense that you grasp the incentives that are in place and why people would pursue those incentives to the point of recklessness at times without agreeing morally with the outcomes of those efforts. I also think it's possible to look at those incentives and see how beneficial they can be. In other ways, in other applications, when they are not taken to an extreme, in the same way that it's possible to enjoy a periodic root beer and regulated quantities of coffee, and to not go overboard and to suffer few, if any, of the consequences that arise when the frequency or quantity of these things are increased ad infinitum. What we would seem to have here, as much as anything else, is an issue of balance, an inability to self-regulate due to numerous influences and common character traits, some of which may be the consequence of or amplified by these companies and their efforts, and some of which are no doubt caused by other things, other ideologies, other incentives, a multitude of background influences that shape us into the people that we become. There are elements of the modern tech world that seem to emphasize and celebrate extremes. And it may be that this drive to ring more from less, to optimize everything to the nth degree, to maximize the output of everything, and to automate as much as possible, always, without considering metrics that are difficult to quantify. It may be that this is nudging things like smartphone addiction away from the larger mass of things that we know are probably addictive and bad for us, and over into its own unique perceptual space. It may also be that we will see more of this sort of scorched earth optimization beyond the world of social networks and dark pattern-laden user interfaces, because that's kind of how we do things. With our current overlapping combination of economic, governmental, and social influences and variables, there's a continuous push-pull between reckless advancement and cautious regulation and our systems are meant to soften the sharpest abusers, sanding them down till they are manageably horrible at times, rather than world-endingly bad. It's possible this specific type of addictive behavior will be shifted in that direction as those countervailing factors, those regulations and other forces, catch up and start shoving us in the opposite direction more effectively. It's also possible, though, That what is happening now represents a true sea change in behavior, in addictive capacity. And because of the volume of resources and smarts being thrown at these networks, at these technologies, and the quantity of users and the ubiquity of the products in question, that there is no coming back. And instead, it will be society that is forced to change. Our habits and norms and expectations will realign to suit this new attention economy reality. And instead of worrying that we are spending too much time on our phones, it could be in the near future that we will get annoyed about those silly Luddites with their ridiculous desire to have us look at something other than a screen. As if there's anything interesting or useful out there in meat space, in the world beyond the digital, society and social correctness and our perception of healthy and right could adjust, could change could evolve to fulfill the needs of the digital world that we are building, rather than the other way around. It's also possible that once we've gotten past these initial awkward years, our smartphone puberty, that these tools will be primarily harnessed for ends that we consider to be good and positive, even by today's standards. I personally get tons of value from networks like Instagram and Twitter. I use them in very specific ways and I am careful to maintain a balance in my relationship with them. I know exactly what they are for, what I want to get out of them, and then I set them aside and keep all the notifications turned off. This is not a relationship balance that seems to be universally appreciated by the folks who are currently running these companies and building these apps, but it may be that they will learn that... As is the case with people, healthier relationships between us and our technologies can lead to more valuable, longer lasting relationships. Rather than wringing their users dry, they can pull back on the addictive stuff, and everyone involved can benefit more as a consequence of that more sustainable, healthful pace. We may also find that these technologies can help us build ourselves and each other up rather than creating spaces in which we feel self-conscious and unaccomplished pretty much all the time, rather than having what amounts to an abusive relationship with our apps, where we keep coming back, despite the abuse, because the abuser is also our only perceived source of emotional sustenance and familiarity. We could potentially reorient existing technologies and build new ones that make us feel more confident and safe and capable, So that these apps become optional, useful tools that amplify us and our self-perception rather than crutches, rather than chemical dependencies. They could be part of a more complete and complex pursuit of personal and social meaning and growth rather than a button that we tap anytime we want a chemical reward that our brains associate with that type of meaning and growth. Of course, at a certain point in this conversation... We have to acknowledge that certain ideologies, our political parties, our religions, even our sports teams, sometimes deploy these same addictive psychological tricks and trigger some of the same downsides as addictive apps and games can trigger. They can make us crave a feeling of belonging at the expense of self-determination. They can give us a surge of dopamine when we toe the line and fit in. And they can leave us with an empty, guilty feeling, a sense of not belonging, when we fail to do what the tribe says, and fail to believe, or at least purport to believe, what the tribe says we should believe in. If we decide to take some kind of action to alleviate the downsides of processed sugar, or Instagram, or tobacco, might we need to do the same for these less tangible but equally addictive in some ways concepts and groups? There's no easy answers here but there does seem to be a growing body of evidence that something has to change. Whether that be in the technologies that we are building, the economic incentives that underpin the development and implementation of those technologies, or, potentially, in our expectations for these things, and what we, personally and societally, deem to be appropriate and good. website that I would like to recommend today is one that I visit on a semi-regular basis because they're always posting new and interesting things. It is called Open Culture, and you can find it at openculture.com. And it is what it sounds like it is. It's kind of a repository for free things, particularly open source things. And so what you'll find on this website is a bunch of links to thousands of different free online courses, free audiobooks and ebooks, open source everything from films to language lessons to syllabi if you're wanting to teach a course and you want to see how other teachers have done it already and perhaps borrow from and riff off courses that they've taught before. And then on a semi-regular basis, they post blog posts essentially that sum up some new collection of things that they've just added to the site. So just recently they added a bunch of new NASA photos. Every once in a while they'll do kind of an interesting outline of some filmmaker that they've just added to their collection. It's really quite fascinating. You never know what you're going to find on this site, but if you're ever looking for something new and different, if you are burnt out on Netflix or Amazon Prime, if you are not finding anything to read at the library or at the bookstore, this is an interesting alternative source that will expose you to a bunch of stuff that you didn't even know was out there, but which is endlessly fascinating and useful. Again, that is openculture.com. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find the tour dates and ticket purchasing information for my upcoming tour at becomingtour.com. And you can find me places like Instagram and Twitter at Colin is my name. Feel free to reach out and say hello, and hopefully, we can have a healthy interaction there. I will try not to be too addictive. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. <music>